Good morning, everyone. If you want to go ahead and open in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, we are continuing our study through the book of Hebrews, and specifically now we have been for some time in Hebrews chapter 11, where we are seeing over and over examples of faith. Throughout the chapter, these individuals are held up to us as examples, not as heroes that we would look at and say, boy, it's a shame we can't be that good. I remember a few years ago, I had an opportunity to go to New York with Debbie for a wedding, and I'm a big baseball fan, as most of you might have figured out, and there was an exhibit from the Baseball Hall of Fame at the Museum of Natural History in New York. So without going to Cooperstown, I was able to see a lot of these exhibits from the Hall of Fame, and it was amazing. But when I was looking at that Hall of Fame, there's one thing that's evident. I'm never going to be there. I couldn't play baseball that way. It's just not possible. It's different with this Hall of Faith, because every one of us can do what these individuals did. Again, we have different, unique uses in the kingdom of God. We're not going to be used like Abraham to found the nation of Israel. But the point of this chapter is that the things that these men of faith did, you can do if you're a believer in Christ. That's the whole point of the entire chapter. And as I spoke last week, I went into a lot of detail on verses 11 and 12, and I explained, if you weren't here why really what's being taught there, I believe, is a continuation of the example of Abraham, even though in some versions it mentions Sarah. Sarah is a part of that text, but as I taught last week, the focus of that text is still Abraham. So when you look through the chapter, we've had these so far five examples of faith. Our belief in creation is an example of faith. And then the life of Abel and Enoch and Noah and then Abraham are all examples of faith. And what you will notice when you look down a little farther, when you get to verse 17, we're going to be back on Abraham again. The writer devotes more attention to Abraham than any other individual of faith. Probably, as best we could understand, the reason would be he's writing to Jewish believers and the founder of Judaism, the founder of the Jewish people, is Abraham. He's their ultimate father from a human lineage standpoint, and so it's not surprising that a writer would focus so much on him. And yet again, the focus is to tell us, even today, as it was with the original hearers, you too can walk by faith. In fact, the example of faith of Abraham should inspire us to be able to keep our eyes on Jesus and do what God calls us to do. Ultimately, what we saw last week, when you boil it all down, is that God is faithful to do what he promised. If God promises something, he will accomplish it, no matter the limitations from a physical standpoint. Even if it's not physically possible, God can overcome all of those circumstances. If God has promised it, he will do it. And that, of course, gives us great hope as the children of God, because all the promises of God for his children... He'll never leave us nor forsake us. He won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able. He'll always provide a way of escape and temptation. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us, and he'll bring us to himself. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. All of these things, all of these promises of God, we know these promises are true. And the whole point of the writer of Hebrews is you can believe them and you can act on them just like Abraham did. No matter your circumstances or trials, no matter how hopeless it may seem... God's word will not fail, and God will not go back on his word. But as we come this morning, we've just finished this section, verses 8 through 12, focusing on Abraham on verse 
17, we're going to be back in Abraham. But in verses 13 through 16, it's as though the writer sort of pauses to say a few theological truths based on some of the things he just taught. He's going through these examples. He's going to come back to the examples. But he he sort of stops and does a little bit of a, a teaching point to remind us of some truths that assisted some of his examples of faith in walking as God wanted them to walk. Now, again, as I've been doing most of this chapter, I've not prepared a specific outline because of the way the chapter's laid out. It's not conducive for me to say three parts, four parts. I suppose I could have created something like that. What we're going to be doing is just walking through these verses this morning, and I think you're going to find a lot of encouragement because what we're going to see is that even if we don't receive material prosperity, material blessings on this earth, even if things don't go correctly on earth for us, if we keep our eyes fixed on the heavenly reality, we'll be able to endure. We'll not just be able to endure as suffering martyrs, we'll be able to thrive and we'll be able to walk by faith no matter what this world throws at us. So I'm going to read verses 13 through 16 in a comprehensive One reading, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to break this down and we're going to walk through what this means both to the original hearers, but what it means for us as well. Beginning in verse 13, the author says this, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The first thing that we run up against is we want to understand who is being spoken of here because the writer starts verse 13 with all these died in faith. Well, the first point is who's these? Who is he speaking with? Because he's already talked about Abel and Enoch and Noah and then Abraham and he's mentioned Isaac and Jacob in his discussion of Abraham. So who specifically is he talking about? I think as we look through this, you'll see that what he's doing is he's talking specifically about Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He's talking specifically here about the patriarchs. He's already made clear in verse 8 that Isaac and Jacob were fellow heirs of the same promises. And in a Jewish context, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob would be recognizable. And so I think when he's talking in verse 13, all these died in faith, he's not talking about Noah and Enoch and Abel. He's talking specifically about the patriarchs. Now, why do I say that? Well, one of the reasons is because Enoch didn't die. We talked about that. He never died. He was taken straight into heaven. So he can't be talking about Enoch here because he couldn't be saying Enoch died in faith because Enoch never did. Also, when you look at the context of the surrounding verses and you look down into verse 15, as I had read it, you'll see he's talking about those who went out. Well, that would have specific applicability to Abraham, who he and his, his descendants ultimately went out of the land from where they were from. There's nothing in the Scripture that says that Abel went out like that or that Noah went out like that. 
So it seems like in the immediate context, he started talking about Abraham at verse 8. He's going to talk about Abraham at verse 17. This little interlude, this little discussion seems to be focused on the life of the patriarchs and what they would know about the patriarchs. And so he's saying that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they died in faith. Now, this goes beyond just saying they were believers. It's showing that they persevered despite all of their imperfections, despite all of their weaknesses, despite the clear examples we could find where they didn't behave in an appropriate manner. At the end of the day, they had faith that endured. They had faith that allowed them to move beyond the temporal earth that they stood on. As one commentator that I highly respect that I enjoy reading, said they continued to look forward to the fulfillment of those promises which God had made to them. In other words, the fact that all of the promises weren't fulfilled, and I'll get into that more, wasn't a deterrent to them. They had their eyes fixed upon Jesus. Period. In fact, when he says all these died in faith without receiving the promises, he's highlighting the fact that all of the things that were promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob didn't come to pass in their lifetime. Now, this doesn't mean that nothing ever occurred. In fact, hold your place in verse 11. I want to go back to something that if you... I want to tie it together because if you went back and looked, you could get confused on this. But you look back to Hebrews chapter 6 because you have an interesting statement and if you didn't understand it, and you didn't look closely at it, you might think Scripture was contradicting itself, but it's not. Beginning at verse 13, it says this, For when God made the promise to Abraham, this is in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you, verse 15, and so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Now, says that Abraham obtained the promise, and that when you get over to chapter 11, it's saying all these died in faith without receiving the promises. The understanding of this actually is not too complicated, and it's not contradicting each other. It's just a different focus in the two contexts. Now, I've taught through Hebrews chapter 6 before, and I put some of that teaching in my notes just to remind you of what I said then. Basically, what he's talking about is the fact that when Abraham was first called and told, you'll have a son, there was approximately 25 years before there was evidence that the promise would be fulfilled. In other words, from the time God said, I'll bless you, Abraham had to wait 25 years before Isaac was born. Not only that, not too long after that, of course, God said, you need to kill Isaac, sacrifice your son to me. And we'll find out later in Hebrews chapter 11, he was willing to do that. He didn't understand it fully, but he thought, even if I kill him, God can bring back Isaac. The point was that Abraham saw a promise fulfilled. The promise was, you'll have a descendant by Sarah. And Abraham obviously lived to see that. He didn't live to see descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky or of the sand of the seashore. Neither did Isaac, neither did Jacob. Abraham didn't live to see all of the promises, but what chapter 6 is talking about in verse 15 is just that specific thing that even though Abraham had to wait 25 years, he did ultimately believe God despite his periods of doubting, despite times of taking matters into his own hands. The reality was he did get to see the child of promise born. That's all that is meant by Hebrews chapter 6 verse 15. 
So when we're looking at Hebrews chapter 11 and we see this phraseology in verse 13 that says all these died in faith without receiving the promises, the promises here is talking about the ultimate fulfillment of all that was promised to Abraham. Abraham was promised descendants more numerous than, than you could count. He didn't live to see that. He was promised the title deed to specific real estate. Look over to there, to there, to there, that's your land. He never owned it. In fact, neither did his son or his son after him. And ultimately, the promise that was made to Abraham, the crux of it, the ultimate fulfillment of it, was that Abraham was promised that the Christ, the Messiah, would come through him. Hold your place here. We're going to look at a couple of passages in Genesis I was thinking through one of the joys of studying the book of Hebrews over this period of time is that it's caused me to spend a lot of time in the Old Testament, and I love studying the Old Testament. But turn to Genesis chapter 22, because I want to point out how these promises, certain promises were made to Abraham, they were reiterated to Isaac, they were reiterated to Jacob, which again provides more impetus for my conclusion that in verse 13 when he says all these, he is talking about these patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 through 18, we see one of the times that God called to Abraham. According to the text, it was the second time. Verse 15, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of the, their enemies. Verse 18, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So that's a promise that transcends his life. The entire, all the nations are going to be blessed through the seed of Abraham. Flip over a few chapters to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapters 26, you see that God is reiterating promises. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4 of Genesis chapter 26. In verses 1 through 4, God is reiterating this promise to Isaac. In other words, God promises to Abraham, he's making clear, and the text that said they're fellow heirs of the same promises, God reiterated these promises. Genesis 26, 1-4, Now there was a famine in the land, besides the previous famine that occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt, stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Verse 3, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, and will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Turn a couple of more chapters. Genesis 28. Genesis 28. We're going to start reading at verse 10. But this is a situation where God came to Jacob. So you had Abraham, then you have Isaac, now you have Jacob. And God came and reiterated promises to Jacob. Verse 10. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. 
He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with the top reaching to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, my point to you in reading these historical accounts is to see how clearly God's promises were made not just to Abraham, but they were made directly to Isaac and they were made directly to Jacob. This wasn't a situation where Isaac and Jacob had these promises because they heard about them. God specifically spoke to them. God reiterated these things. And the promises included descendants that you couldn't count. It included real estate. But going back to the original promise to Abraham, it also included Jesus Christ. Because that reference to seed is very significant. And in the New Testament, it's made very clear that reference to seed is talking about Jesus. I won't ask you to necessarily turn there, but I'll, you can write down the reference. In Acts chapter 3, verses 25 to 26, this is taught exactly. Acts chapter 3, verses 25 and 26 says this. It's in the midst of a, a sermon to Jewish people. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham... And in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. It's clearly being taught that the seed promised to Abraham is the servant God sent. It's Jesus Christ himself. The Apostle Paul taught the same thing in Galatians 3.16. Galatians 3.16 says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. So bringing all this together, and looking back in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, when it said, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, what's being said is that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob did not waver in their faith. They went to their deathbed believing in God, even though all the promises that had been reiterated to them directly by God, they did not see fulfilled in their lifetime. They didn't see Jesus Christ walk on the earth. That was centuries and centuries later. They didn't see themselves and their descendants as numerous as the sand of the seashore. They had a few kids, that was it. They didn't see them possessing all of the land that God promised that said, this is going to be yours. They didn't see it. All of these things are wrapped up in this. And the point is, even though they didn't see it, even though they lived a lifetime without receiving all of the things that were promised, they didn't waver. It's interesting. You might think that living year after year waiting on God might have become overwhelming. Waiting and waiting and waiting is hard. I don't have time to share it. I gave my testimony, I think, in the past. I talked about it. Waiting just three years for the Lord to open a door for me to be in ministry and to come here to Lakeside was excruciating. These people waited a lifetime. 
Isaac was born hearing about God and his promises. God reiterated those promises. Isaac died, but he didn't see them all fulfilled. Same way with Abraham. Same way with Jacob. These men lived year after year after year. But Hebrews doesn't paint a picture of them walking around, woe is me, woe is me, throwing up sackcloth and ashes, dust on their heads, woe is me, God just didn't come through, I can't believe it. No. It makes it clear the way they were able to do this was they weren't looking at the earth and the things of the earth. Continuing on in verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now, these verses go together, and I'm going to get to all the explanation, but what you see here is they understood that what God promised was far more than just this temporal existence. It says they welcomed God's promises. They saw God's promises. In other words, God directed them to them. They could see the promises of God. He told them. There's a sense in which Abraham could see the promises of God because he saw Isaac. Isaac could see it because he saw Jacob. And it says they welcomed them from a distance. This isn't talking about the fact that they stood and saw a long ways away. This is talking about the fact they understood it was in the future these things were going to occur. They understood that they might not see all these things. They were looking forward. They welcomed them from a distance. They knew this was in the future. This isn't going to happen necessarily now. But they didn't waver. Sure, they had times of doubts. They had times of... Sin, they had all kinds of things, but at the end of the day, they didn't walk around moping, going, poor me, poor me. They were looking to the heavenly reality. In fact, that's the phraseology here. We'll we'll tie it back into verses 9 and 10 that we talked about a few months ago. But it says, having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth is just a reality that while they were walking around, they didn't have a permanent place. I'm very thankful that we have a house to live in. I'm thankful that we have a place to call home. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob never even really had that. They were mobile. They were going. Once in a while they might settle for a little bit, but they were promised all of this land, this is all going to be yours, and they never even got to hang up a shingle, so to speak. They never got to plant a mailbox. And they confessed they were strangers and exiles. In other words, they knew that ultimately the earth was not their home. Ultimately, they were able, by faith, to look beyond their circumstances, to look beyond what was going on on the earth around them, and keep their eyes on heaven, and it enabled them to do these things. We know that it wasn't just looking at different things. They actually understood in some respect, Abraham understood Jesus. John 8.56 makes this clear. This is Jesus' own teaching. John 8.56, he's arguing with these religious leaders, these Jewish people that would have held up with a measure of perverse pride. Abraham's our father. We're okay with God because Abraham's our father. And Jesus says in 8.56 of the Gospel of John, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. I think this is the type of thing that's in view... The writer of Hebrews is saying they could understand, they could look forward. They knew there was a Redeemer. They knew there was a Savior. So it wasn't hard for them to disclaim permanence on the earth. 
says having confessed. It means they were saying, they understood it, they believed it, they verbalized it. Again, for time's sake, I won't ask you to turn there. I'll just give you a couple of references from Genesis again. You can write down Genesis 23, 4. Language that is very close to what is the writer of Hebrews is saying. This is when Abraham wanted to bury Sarah. I mean, he's in the promised land. God said, you go, I'll show you where to go. He went, then ultimately Sarah dies, and he says to people in Genesis 23, 4, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. In fact, far we know that's the only property that Abraham actually owned was a funeral plot. Jacob himself was able to talk about what his life consisted of. And he used this phraseology. He was talking to Pharaoh in Genesis 47, 9. But Jacob is talking about his life. He said, the years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. This idea is that they were wanderers on this earth. They were strangers to this earth, traveling through, looking for the reality of Jesus Christ one day. And I think this is what verses 14 and 15 bring out even further when we see what they were looking at. Verse 14 says this, For those who say such things, that means these are those who confess that they're just aliens and strangers. For those who say such things, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own, verse 15, and indeed if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. Again, I think this really provides the additional context to make it clear that he's talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and not Noah and Enoch and Abel in this context. But he's making it clear. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob acknowledged they were aliens and strangers. All the time, though, that they were aliens and strangers on this earth, it says they were looking for a country of their own. In other words, they were looking towards the place where they actually belonged, the place where they would receive every promise from God, the place that God wanted them to ultimately be. And verse 15 makes it clear that it's not just talking about earthly geography. In other words, there are some people who wander around and they don't have a place to call their home and they long to go back to what they knew growing up. Well, back in my country, this was the way it was. Back where I used to live. And they have this longing that's tied to geography. You know, I was born and raised in Perry. And while I wouldn't want to live in Perry anymore, there's still a special place in my heart when I go back there. I'm 47 years old. I haven't been there since I was 18 I feel like a stranger in some respects, but there's still a special place in my heart where I see the places I ran around as a kid or where I played baseball or where various events in my life happened. What verse 15 is making it clear, this isn't some sentimental trip that these gentlemen were on. They weren't longing back to their days of youth or sentimentally thinking, well, if we only had an ancestral homeland, a a place to call home. He's making it clear, actually, if they were looking for a place on the earth, they could have gone back to where Abraham came from. Abraham knew where he was from. There's a sense in which Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had a certain level of human freedom. They could have disregarded what God said when God said, go out to Abraham. Abraham could have gone back. He didn't, because he walked by faith. But the writer is just pointing out, look, if all of these men wanted was real estate, well, they could have gone back to the real estate they knew. In fact, Abraham would have had a claim on that real estate probably, and he could have been there. 
But Abraham didn't do that, and Isaac and Jacob followed in his footsteps. Ur was Abraham's original home, according to Genesis chapter 11. He came from Ur. It was the home of his father before him. And it's not like Abraham forgot where he came from. In fact, if you recall, and again, just write down these references. In Genesis 24, 2-4. Genesis 24, 2-4. Abraham wanted a son for Isaac, and he didn't want his son's wife to come from all the people they were living with. And if you remember the story, he said, you take, you don't take my son. He stays here with me, but you go back to where I came from. Find a wife for my son. He said, but you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son, Isaac. Abraham knew where his family lived. If all they were looking for was a place on earth to call home, if they just were looking for some security that might come from being where your family is, Abraham could have gone. That's what verse 15 is talking about. But he wouldn't go. He wouldn't even allow Isaac to go. Because there was a greater desire to be where God wanted him to be than just to find personal security or comfort on this earth because they were just passing through this earth. In fact, when you read the accounts, at one point Jacob actually did go back to where some of his family was from. You remember he tricked his father with his mother's help and he thought his brother was going to kill him and so... Got away from there. In fact, Rebecca told Isaac, look, I, I can't send all these women around here. How about you send him back to where I'm from and we'll, we'll find a wife for him there. And that's what he did. He went and worked for Laban. And then a long time Laban tricked him. All that kind of thing. The point is he knew where he was from. They always did. There was ancestral homelands. But in Genesis 30, 25... We see that Jacob knew those ancestral homelands weren't where he was supposed to be. In fact, he said, send me back to where I used to be, Laban. Let me go. And then Genesis 31.3, God told Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and your relatives. I will be with you. He didn't mean back to where he originally came from. He meant from where Abraham and Isaac were. Again, all of this is just trying to illustrate the point that this wasn't just some sentimentality of, well, life isn't good here. If I could only go to that physical location, life would be better. They weren't thinking about life on earth at all. Verse 16 makes this clear in the first part. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. That's really a reiteration of truth that was already taught in verses 9 and 10. Just look down in verses 9 and 10. By faith, he, Abraham, lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he, Abraham, was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. These same truths are being reiterated here. They weren't fixated on the earth. They knew the earth wasn't where they would find fulfillment of the promises of God. It was in heaven. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob knew that God had prepared a place for them. That's what the rest of verse 16 says. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. It's incredible. And I would hope you would take great encouragement from that phrase. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. Abraham did some shameful things. He's a great man, a great man of faith. We will see him in heaven. But he did some shameful things. Allowing his wife to be taken away 
twice just because he was trying to save his own skin. Sleeping with a woman not his wife at his wife's suggestion just because he was trying to jumpstart the promises of God. Jacob deceived his father with his mom's help to take something that wasn't his by human rights. You see example after example, these men were fallible. They didn't live perfect lives. But because they had faith, the scriptures say God is not ashamed to be called their God. This is an expression of a reality. If you look at how God describes himself later to future generations, just write down the reference, Exodus 3.6. This isn't the only place, but Exodus 3.6 is a good illustration of the reality of what the writer of Hebrews was teaching. God was talking to Moses in Exodus 3.6. And he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Here's the point. God truly wasn't ashamed to be called their God. Despite their sin, despite their shortcomings, despite how they failed, because of their faith, God wasn't ashamed of them. In fact, God prepared a city for them. Very reminiscent of truths proclaimed to us in John 14, 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. So much of this that applies to us, but much of our life, we are not walking on the mountaintop of Christian victory. If I sat down one-on-one with you and we had an honest conversation and I found out, as best you know, when you came to faith, I can assure you, every one of us, from the time we came to faith until now, there are some shameful things that have occurred. There are times when we have willingly sinned against God. We knew better. We didn't just slip up. We intentionally walked away. There are times when we doubt God. We want to believe, but we're like that person who honestly said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Where we doubt, we look at our circumstances and our circumstances are so horrific and they're so helpless and we think, is this really what it looks like when God holds one of his children in his hand? Is this what it means to be surrounded by the love of God? Let me encourage you. We can do what Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were able to do. In fact, it's imperative. We are strangers on this earth. I'm proud to be an American, but America's not my home. This isn't the place for us. We are passing through this sin-filled world, and despite our shortcomings, despite our stumbles, despite our falls, despite the number of times we have fallen into the mud, because of Jesus Christ, if we have faith, God is not ashamed to be called our God. He's not ashamed to be called your God. And He's prepared a city for us. If you are tempted to be discouraged or to doubt or to worry. The patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, are examples to us. Walk by faith. No matter how unworthy you feel at times, no matter how far you have fallen short, no matter how much you have sinned, if you have genuine faith in Jesus Christ, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for the forgiveness of your sins... 
If he is your substitute, sin bearer, the promises of God are true. John 10, 27 and 29, I'll leave you with these encouraging words. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. Is no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. No matter what you face on this earth, if you walk in faith, those promises are a reality. And they'll never go away. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we can't fully comprehend the extent of your love for sinners like us. Lord, when we are thinking rightly, when we are walking by your Spirit, we would never dream of doing anything to disappoint you. And yet, Lord, even though we know better, in a sin-filled world, living in a body that still has fleshly desires, we stumble and fall. And yet, Lord, because of Christ, you're not ashamed to be called our God. Lord, I pray that we can take comfort in that. I pray that you will encourage us to walk by faith. Lord, so many times we think if our circumstances changed, if this was different, if that was different, if I had more money, if I had different health, if I had a different medical report, if I had a different job. Yet, Lord, none of those things are at the heart of who we are as your children. Help us get our eyes off of all of those things. Lord, you know what we need. You'll provide. Lord, help us keep our eyes fixed on where we truly belong, which is in heaven with you. Lord, help us lay aside any entanglement, any distraction, anything that would separate us from wholehearted devotion to you and let us fix our eyes on Jesus. And Lord, enable us by the power of your spirit to run the race that you've put in front of us, knowing all along that our hope is in heaven with you. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.